This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about investing. More specifically, we're talking about the ways in which investors are able to align their portfolio with their values and the causes they care about, otherwise known as ESG investing. Long gone are the days of investing solely for the bottom line. A growing percentage of investors want to put their hard-earned money into organizations that align with their personal values. Some want to move away from a one-size-fits-all basket of blue-chip stocks, from one curated to initiatives that are actually things that matter to them. Are the supply chains ethically developed? Do the employees receive fair compensation? What is the background of the C-suite executives and the board of directors? When investors base financial decisions on these factors, it's known as ESG investing. But from a financial standpoint, are these initiatives really worth the hype? ESG investing is a strategy that takes into account the environmental, social, and governance factors of an organization how a company affects the environment, how it treats its employees and communities, and how leadership governs the organization all contribute to a company's ESG profile. And these three pillars form a framework for assessing a company beyond quarterly financial figures. While some may strictly invest in this manner as an outward expression of their values, others believe this is a winning formula for people in the planet. And while ESG investing may be a relatively new term to some of our listeners, The journey of intentional investing began a long time ago, taking many different forms before resembling the framework today. My guest today is Daniel Naeem, founder and CEO of Fennel, an ESG investing platform created to empower retail investors with the knowledge required to advance the engaged shareholder movement. After beginning his own personal investing journey, Daniel observed the traditional investment platform models failed to encourage the alignment of consumer and company values. Daniel founded Fennel to highlight a corporation's ESG metrics and make shareholder voting information easily accessible to the public. His mission is to promote shareholder activism across the industry and ensure everyday people know how the companies they invest in impact the world. So with that brief introduction, welcome Daniel Naeem to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you, Malcolm. That's such a great overview of what ESG is. It's very refreshing. 
Yeah, you know, we try to uh, to dig a little deeper than just the things that are easily Googleable. Is how I like to say it. <laughs> very clear, very clear. So I breezed through your resume pretty quickly, though, in my intro. What else should I have included about you? Yeah, so I don't actually traditionally come from a very finance-heavy background. I was doing my physics PhD before this in dark matter research and nuclear detector monitoring. And so my journey into finance really started with this belief around climate change and how can we activate quicker and how can we get more everyday people involved. Well, as I'm sure you have found to this point, sometimes outsiders tend to have the best perspective with big, hard, heavy problems. And so it's probably a good thing that you didn't get a chance to develop all the biases and everything else that come along with being an insider. Yeah, no baggage, no baggage here. Just clear what we have to do. Yeah. Well, uh, to that end, though, like of all of the, the investing strategies there are out there for you to grab hold of and get excited about, why ESG investing? Like, what is it about ESG that you find so interesting? Yeah. So, you know, what I find so interesting about ESG is, it's a new form of expression for a new generation. So just like you said in your introduction here, ESG investing has been around for a while, and it's typically reserved for high net worth clients, people who have access to more information than the everyday person, right? So who's in the management, right? We're not just making investment decisions based on a quarterly earnings report. We're taking a deep look into who the executive management is, who sits on the board, how are they navigating the current market conditions, as well as all the other stuff, like what policies do they have in place? Are they exposed to risk, et cetera? So I find ESG investing really, really interesting for two reasons. The first is it highlights risk in a different way, mm -hmm. right? So you start to really understand how a business, where it's exposed to, what could cause it to take a turn for the worse, or what could cause it to gain tailwinds in the next few years, whether that's management, how they deal with environmental efforts, et cetera. The second is you have a young generation that really, really cares about environmental and social issues. And for the first time in history, we are able to quantify those issues, right? We're able to actually put numbers behind values, which has never really happened before. What's interesting is I myself am a millennial and I came into this industry in 2011. Um, so like right after the financial crisis, the Great Recession and everything else. And I remember at the time that I started my financial services career, ESG was really big. And people are like, oh my God, these young people are not going to invest <laughs> in things that aren't ESG friendly. Don't those young people also know that it's the sin stocks that actually have earnings, right? <laughs> if you don't own alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, you aren't going to make any money. Like, how do we work with these people to help them understand that they're missing the boat? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And people thought millennials were really it as far as being so environmentally conscious and everything else. And I have come to find that it is actually Gen Z who really cares enough to do something about it. Right. Like millennials care and talk about it and know about it and, you know, are willing to have engage in conversation about the environment and the importance of social governance of companies when you invest in that kind of stuff. Yeah. But not nearly to the same extent that I found Gen Zers are. And I'm overgeneralizing here a little yeah, bit yeah. and putting people in buckets by the time they were born and everything else. But I'm, I'm saying that to say, even I, who considers myself still sort of young, looks at people younger than me in their 20s and even teenagers. And I say, that is where this ESG push is really going to make a difference. 
And if you as a corporation haven't figured out a way to communicate your ESG philosophy to those people yet, you got about five years to figure it out. Otherwise, you are in some real trouble. Yeah, no, I, look, so there's so many things to pick apart there. I mean, the first is that you look at the way people are making purchasing decisions today. Mm-hmm. They immediately look, is this product sustainable? Is it recyclable? Every other day you talk about, you know, does X company treat their employees right? Well, I don't want to support a system like that. Are they greenwashing? Are they, you know, it's Black History Month right now. Are they just coming in and saying something about Black History Month to try to get... Or they put up a black square on Instagram. <laughs> exactly, right? And so we're all like making these decisions on a day-to-day basis and shifting our consumption behaviors. And if companies don't start to, you know, be hyper aware of that, if the people that work within these companies eventually who are going to become the millennial Gen Z generation and take over management, if they don't start, you know, addressing how are we going to shift our business away, you can rest assured that their business model is not going to succeed in the future. And as an investor, you're not going to want to invest in that. And a couple of things, it's not just the young generation. So my argument to you about the millennial, you know, we were like that at one time. And I think you get older and as you get older, right, you become more conservative. There's some Mark Twain quote in there, something saying if you're not, you know, a conservative by the time you're 60, like something's wrong with you. Yeah. I just think the products are not there for us. So it's like, yes, I would like to invest in whatever I want to invest in, but I want to actually vote to make said company better. I want to have influence within the company, right? Because I mean, that's what you gain access to as an investor. It's not like the boomer generation ever, they were the Vietnam generation. They had this huge push when they were our age and they wanted to get out of Agent Orange of companies investing in Agent Orange. So I think as we grow older, just there's no products that are really servicing those clients and servicing those needs, right? It's very easy when you're young to be value-based. But as you grow older, as you have kids and all the stuff, you have to understand how to take care of yourself while also taking care of the planet. That's fair. I don't disagree with the premise that as we get older, we become one, more complacent. And two, you have other things on your mind and, and that sort of thing. But I'm noticing the buying habits of those folks. And I'm like, yeah, they care a lot more than I I ever did. (laughs) But so how does ESG investing, we keep using that phrase kind of broadly. I defined it in the intro, but still, how does it differ, if at all, from popular terms like socially responsible investing or ethical investing or sustainable investing or impact investing or mission-driven? Like, There's so many terms How does ESG differ, if at all, from the rest of them? Yeah, like, you know, is a rose just as sweet by any other name? You know, I think like a lot of this is very, it's evolved over the years, just as like, you know, modern pop culture evolves, so does terminology and finance. How do we communicate about things? But ESG has been around for a while. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the ESG purist would tell you that ESG is now a way to understand risk, assess risk. It's just numbers. You shouldn't get mad at the numbers. You shouldn't assign a certain agenda. It's ludicrous to do so. The reality is it's because the pendulum has swung in the past two years that this narrative is is coming out, right? You're having a severe anti-ESG backlash from certain political organizations, certain et cetera. So people get defensive and they really want to share the like good things about ESG. So whether you adopt that language, et cetera, you know, you're still part of the ESG framework. So what ESG is not, I mean, it is belief agnostic, right? To understand ESG is to understand its history, which is SRI, which is socially responsible investing. You look back to the 70s, actually ESG was started with a lot of religious groups. Christian nuns actually banded together 
to push public companies to divest from abortifacents or tobacco products or alcohol products, like you're saying. It hmm. was a, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was, it was a very, you know, religious upbringing before that, the Methodists in the, the late 1800s still. Like I talked about the boomer generation in Vietnam, that universities told them to divest from Agent Orange and all the stuff that was being used in Vietnam. So this has been around for quite a while. But in 2004, the UN released this report called Who Cares Wins? And it was essentially a way to understand, you know, at the time, an inconvenient truth was coming out. Like We were just starting to really put together this global framework for environmental standards. And so the UN came together and they said, look, like these businesses are putting our world at risk and we need to have some quantifiable way of measuring that as global supply chains expand, as carbon emission expands, like how do we assess risk? And so it started within the UN and since then it's, it's evolved into a bunch of different things, right? I'm happy to like get into the details of a lot of those things, but, but I can just tell you what it's not, which is it's not trying to drive an agenda. So let's stick there for a second, though, because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about specifically is that a criticism of ESG that I hear that, frankly, sometimes I do even agree with is that the ESG investing world can be muddied by what we refer to as greenwashing, yes. right? Where organizations basically cloak their business practices behind a veil of, you yep. know, some clever PR marketing strategy yep. and, and flowery language. So. Yep. How can Fennel users specifically, I'll, I'll throw it, you know, to you guys, Please. Uh, feel confident that an organization is actually walking that talk when it comes to ESG initiatives? Yeah, yeah. So great question. And look, yes, companies do that, period. They hide behind a wall. Greenwashing is a huge problem right now. Yeah. But because there's no regulation, right? The SEC is coming out with some regulation now saying that companies have to disclose their carbon emission. Mm-hmm. They're coming out with more of these regulations. And ultimately, that's going to be the solution. It's disclosures. Okay. And how are public companies held accountable? Just in the same way they're held accountable for financial metrics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just want to preface it with saying that. Moving on to Fennel, though, like we are not just checking ESG as some box, it is ingrained into the fabric of the company. Our motto is we really are here to rewire the fabric of capitalism. And we think that there's very smart ways in which you can do that with ESG. So the first is we're not just giving you an ESG score or a rating, not just saying, hey, trust us. Uh, A bunch of things went into this. You don't need to worry about it. No, we are giving you breakdowns. We have over 700 to 900 metrics. Uh, Let's say you care about gender equality. We tell you what's the percentage of pay gap between men and women at the company? What's the percentage of women managers at the company? What's the maternity leave policy, et cetera? We do that for carbon emission. We do that for shareholder rights. We do that for pay gap between racial minorities and non-racial minorities. We tell you what the board breakdown is across those different demographics. So we're not just saying, trust us. We're saying, no, no, you need to see this for yourself because whatever the company is putting out in the marketing space, don't fall for it. Look at their actual numbers. Look at what they're doing. Right. Look, you know, people can say, I really care about diversity. Okay. But are you putting people on your board? Are you waiting for the government to step in and say, Hey, we need mandate a woman on every board? You know, it's pretty crazy. So we just think giving that information in a nice UX UI where people can digest it and look for themselves is important. And then, you know, secondly, we're not just doing this for independent companies. We're doing this for ETFs and whole portfolios or customized watch lists, whatever you want to do. We're highlighting what's the average ESG score of that 
ETF, comparing it to like the S&P 500. And all of those metrics that I told you, we give you breakdown. So we say, in this ETF, what's the average percent of women employees versus the S&P 500? Mm -hmm. And so you don't even have to, if an ETF is called green bond ETF, you can go in there and see what the carbon emission, average carbon emission of a company in that ETF is. Out of curiosity. Yeah. How many of the ETFs that you've surveyed actually fare much better than the S&P as a whole? Okay, so you're getting into something very, very nuanced because there's this thing called materiality, okay, Mm -hmm. in ESG. It's very important. There's double materiality. It's all this complex language that serves as a barrier. The thing you have to understand is that each industry, okay, whether it's the tech industry, whether it's the transportation, sub-industry, it it doesn't matter. Each industry has important metrics to it that determine its ESG score, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're looking at the carbon emissions of Apple versus the carbon emissions of ExxonMobil, you can't compare Mm -hmm. apples to apples. ExxonMobil is like roughly 15% of all carbon emission in the US, it counts for, right? But ExxonMobil shows up as a very green company on certain screeners because they also plant trees in places people will never ever travel to. So that's not exactly why. Yes, but that's not the only reason why. Okay, It's because they're being compared to others within their industry. Exxon and Shell are huge. Look, everything's money. Everything's about money. So a journalist... Mm -hmm they're going to want to cover the largest companies. They're going to want to cover Exxon and they're going to want to cover Shell. So that's what we hear about every day. But you don't know about the you know smaller public companies based out of Texas that are actually having much, much worse <laughs> practices in the carbon emission space, right? Yeah. So we hear about them the most and we fall victim to the same side of the other coin of the marketing head, right? The company's fighting the public journalists. The public journalists are trying to put them down. So that's why just look at the numbers, look at the actual policies, look at the procedures, and where have they been improving year over year. And so when you look at an ESG score, you will never be able to compare, like that's just the lazy, that's just saying, look, I want to forego reality for convenience, right? Which like, unfortunately has gotten us into this position of climate change and all this stuff and social issues is like, you have to compare Exxon to Shell to another oil company to another oil company. And that's typically why it's ranked higher. And we want to help people understand why that's the case. It doesn't mean because they're ranked in the top five within their industry that that's sufficient. Mm-hmm. We still believe that you should be pushing more. The reason I say that, and you know, we could talk about shareholder voting and all this stuff, but you look at Exxon versus Shell. Let's just take them as an example. 15 years ago, Shell decided to start converting more of its higher carbon emitting output energy resources into renewables. Today, it fares much better than Exxon across, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those metrics. What's the dollar per oil barrel? What's the carbon emission per oil barrel produced, et cetera? So you can still push public companies to become better. Yeah. Yeah. I've had conversation in the past in my day job with financial planning clients where they come in and say, you know, we really want an ESG focus in our portfolio. We really want to be you know, and then we go to our list of, you know, pre-screen approved ESG right. funds. Right. And staring smack at you at the very top of it is Apple, Microsoft, yes. Google, yes. and, you know, seven other companies that you look at and go, well, this is anybody's large cap growth strategy. How is this the ESG portfolio? That's exactly back to your point, right? So going back to the, the original question you asked, Because there's difference in materiality between industries, 
the lazy portfolio manager will go and say, okay, I'm Apple's great with carbon emission. Microsoft is great with carbon. They're 100% renewable. Yeah. So I'm just going to make those the highest weighted and get rid of one of these large emission companies like Exxon or Shell. Yeah. So there's a real problem there. Fortunately, the SEC is starting to crack down more on that. You know, they're starting to have more restrictions in place for what ESG is. And yeah. my hope is that, you know, Fennel, we've thought a lot about, okay, not just the retail, but how do we service wealth managers, et cetera? Like, how do we expand into those spaces? Mm-hmm. I just think over the next year or two, as more of these tools come out, it'll make it easier for wealth managers to help their clients in a more nuanced way, right? It doesn't yeah. just have to. People will also just have to care more. Like that's, yes. that's one of the, <laughs> yes. that's one of the, the low hanging fruit kind of answers too. Yeah. But meet them where they are, right? Like meet them where people are there. We know they're limited. They have other worries in their lives. So how do we make it easier for them? But absolutely. Fair enough. Well, so another question I had for you in, in preparing for this on the Fennel website, you know, you discussed beginning your own journey as an investor and being frustrated with the traditional investing platform model, like we're talking about. Yeah. Right? Can you share a little bit more about that journey and how you know you got to this place where you said, I'm actually going to devote a significant portion of my days working on helping to solve this problem? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was born in San Mateo in the US, but I spent a lot of time internationally. I spent a lot of time in Beirut, Lebanon, and then I came back here for college. So like when you talk about investing, you don't hear about investing there, right? I didn't even know what <laughs> what the stock market was until I was maybe 22. Sure. So, you know, I'd never been exposed to that. I started my physics PhD career and I took this class called econophysics, which was like, how do you take physics models and apply them to the stock market? So for anyone familiar with the field, essentially, how do you become a quant, a quantitative trader? And at first I just took it as an extra credit that I had to fill and it was interesting and I had somewhat of an economics background. So why not? But then I was hooked. I became obsessed. Like I started trading my own models. I would wake up at like 4 a.m. to try to, you know, I'm on the West Coast to try to align myself mm-hmm. when markets open, train my algorithms, go to the lab, come back and tweak them. Okay. And I was doing this like I was like a closeted financial a person trying to communicate with other physicists. And, you know, I was getting towards the end of my graduation and the PhD and, and a couple things were weighing on me. So the first was you know, what was I going to do with with my career after? Academia was great, but it turns out like it is a lot about money and politics. And I wasn't sure I wanted to spend most of my time, you know, debating on those things. And then the second was I lived in the Bay Area and you couldn't see the sun some summers. Like we had a fifth season called Fire and uh, you just would wear the N95 mask, the sun would be blotted out and you just go to work as if everything was normal. And so I had this existential dread of like, why are we not doing anything about this? Why, yeah. why can't I do anything about this, right? I want to do well for my career. I want to do well for my life, but yeah, how do I do this? And I was thinking like, also, why don't people have access to the same data that I have, right? We all have our phones. We have this incredibly complex network that we've set up amongst society, but somehow I can't get information about companies in these ways. I can't build financial models that you know Wall Street has access to. So I said, okay, let's build our own. And three things were happening at the time that kind of convinced me to start Fennel and were the light, light bulb moments here. So the first was you looked at a company like Tesla. Tesla was uh-huh. exploding in the stock market. And it wasn't because price to earnings ratio. I mean, that, those were out of whack. The financial- It was a social movement. Yeah, it was a social movement. People knew 
that a world in 20 years couldn't exist without electric vehicles. It was just obvious, yeah. right? It was a value-based investing system, and it was obvious. And what happened? Two things. Domestic and international policy started to change. So California and New Jersey are like, by 2035, we're only going to have the sale of electric vehicles allowed. Germany as well. Yep. And that's growing uh, year over year. And as California goes, so goes the rest of the auto market. <laughs> exactly, because they're like half of the purchasing people, you know? Yeah. And I mean, y- your point is completely valid, which is like money talks. That light bulb went off. Like money really does decide a lot of our society. Where are we putting yeah. our resources to advance society? And how are we even determining that if we don't have the information? Like this is a democratic system, yet it doesn't work because it's not truly democratic, Right. And then all of a sudden, Ford and GM start dumping billions into EV infrastructure. It's like, why couldn't this happen before? Well, okay, capital markets talk. So, okay, light bulb went off. The physicist who never thinks about money is like, oh, money matters in this world? (laughs) What everyone else knows on a day-to-day basis. The second thing was there was this small hedge fund called Engine Number One. Okay, visionaries, like visionary people that got together $50 million fund. And they said, look, we're going to challenge ExxonMobil. We're going to try to take over some of the board seats, right? Activism in the past has, you know, varied. There's been a lot of instances of social activism in in shareholder voting, et cetera. But this was a very like tempered approach. It was like, we're talking to the financials of the company, right? It's the same argument I made with Shell of like... Also, activist investing is something that's been reserved for super, super wealthy people who have the time, first of all. Yes. And then the access, second of all. And then the know-how to be able to wield that power into making the company do a thing. Yes. And then once they get there and they have the ear of the powers that be at the company, all they really want is for the company to return more capital to shareholders. Yes. Because they themselves have just become a 9% shareholder. Bing. So it's not so much using that power and influence to do things that benefit the greater good of everyone. It's using that power and influence to benefit the greater good of yourself, your company, and anybody else who owns shares of that particular company just comes along for the ride. Which, by the way, is everyone. <laughs> the stock market is a public-owned system. I mean, that's why public, you know, companies go public. It's in our retirement funds. It's in our 401ks. It's we all have a say. Well, yes and no. So 59% of the U.S. population is what we consider the shareholder class, right? Okay. That other 41, yes. what is that, 31%, we say, oh, well, they don't necessarily count in this equation, right? But that 41% does actually breathe air. So that 41% matters to us. Can you use your imagination to understand what the demographic breakdown of the 41 versus the 59, you know? Yes, I can. Yes, I I absolutely can. And and that was one of my epiphany moments. Like when I discovered the stock market, I really thought like, oh, this is the reason to be an American. Like Mm. that that literally was a light bulb. Oh, the only reason I have a social security is so I can invest in the stock market. Like why live in a capitalist system if you can't? Like it was night and day. I was like, wait, people are making money on their money, not just like fighting day-to-day inflation, like fighting their living standards. Like it's insane to me, right? And I was like, how do I not know about this? How do people not know about this, right? How do I go my whole life without being exposed to this? And so what you're talking about, right? That small group of concerned people that in my personal view, like that is all of us, 
even the 59% that you're talking about, like over a third yeah. are just self-directed retail investors in the brokerage industry, you know, not even through their 401ks, not even, not even. So like Apple is, you know, probably a third owned by everyday people, all public yeah. companies are. So engine number one did this, by the way. So they literally got the help of BlackRock and they took over four of the 12 board seats of ExxonMobil with the sole intent of reducing carbon emission. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if, you know, we did this, something similar for social movements, for equal pay, for whatever it might be. And then the third thing that happened was the, the retail movement around GameStop, right? That was fascinating to me because it was Occupy Wall Street inside of Wall Street, right? People had gotten together and organized somehow society had, you know, you know, I don't claim to see or understand why this happened, but we all congregated around this this issue, right? And it wasn't just a meme stock issue. Like people that talk about that, they really need to understand the nuances of, of what this investor class was really after and how they're still in it, how they're DRS and all this stuff, which, you know, we could talk about later. But yeah. But I thought, okay, can we put all three of these things together? Can you take a retail shareholder approach to shareholder voting, to ESG, to create positive change, right? Because truly, you only need to own the stock on one single day to participate mm-hmm. in the vote. So if you could imagine, use your imagination to imagine, what could these retail investors come together to do, go company to company, knocking on the door? I always like to think of that Grim Reaper meme of like knocking on the door to door. Like they could really create very positive change for the world. I hadn't thought of applying that same thought process and methodology of the energy is the word I'm looking for of the whole meme stock trading movement. But you're right. If folks could see that as a way to both get paid and make a difference and collectively bring those folks together to do it, then you're right. It probably does make a significant difference and really fast because all I see out of Exxon now is ESG, ESG, ESG. Here's our carbon footprint. Here's our board makeup. Here's our, here's our details. Please love us. And even I just listened to the earnings call from them where they were talking about a pretty hefty share buyback that they're planning. Yep. But theirs wasn't as large as their number one competitor, Chevron, because instead of just returning, quote unquote, just returning their excess profits to shareholders in the form of a special dividend and share buybacks and everything else, they're reinvesting it now into their carbon emissions efforts. And that was the thing they highlighted on their earnings Which call. is smart because look, if you're an investor thinking about where is Exxon going to be in 10 years, okay, give mm-hmm. me my dividend buyback now. Great. That's a short-term profit. But if you're a real person who is investing for the long-term, which like you said, most high net worth clients are because they gain access to that power, you want to know that they're adapting to the new environment. Yep. And so I assume this conversation that we're having is what you guys refer to as your engaged shareholder movement, exactly. right? If I can, got it. Exactly. Okay. So give them the information that they need and then put the votes that are happening directly in the application. And so when you start to look at the votes, it shocked me. I was like, my jaw was on the floor. And every time I share this with people, they, you know, they don't believe it's true. But it's like votes like, should Apple report on its forced labor practices? Should Microsoft report mm-hmm. on its gender pay gap disparities? Should Amazon reduce its plastic emissions in certain targeted specific ways with a bunch of detailed reports explaining why and where and all this stuff? Should Tesla allow unionization of its employees, you know? So I would just encourage people to just know what is happening. And there's a reason that these documents are 50 pages, 10-point font, 
not understandable, you know, yeah. So one other issue that I know is sort of near and dear for you on this subject is the idea around payment for order flow. Yep. I understand that that's another one of you guys kind of sticking points. Yeah. Um, and since this is the place that tech workers come to get smarter about their money, I'd like to ask you about that specifically because a lot of our audience is that do-it-yourself retail investor that you got done talking about just now. Mm-hmm. Payment for order flow is somewhat of a widely known concept at this point following you know meme stock mania and what have you. But I don't think it necessarily still has gotten the type of attention that it should by now to let people know exactly what yeah. gets done with that transaction data once they place a trade. Can you say a little bit about that and why that's a sticking point for you guys? Yeah, I'm going to talk about that. And I'm also going to talk about securities lending, if you don't mind, because I think you know both of sure. them are related in some way and kind of why we started Fennel. So I could talk about what payment for order flow is. Okay, so it's been around for a while. In recent years, with you know the rise of these mobile applications, I think it was like made a sustaining or what they believed to be a self-sustaining business model. Which you know immediately I knew there were problems with, and I'll kind of explain why it's an unsustainable practice. What it does is says, look, the financial system is complicated. I need to go to open markets to buy and sell stocks, or I need to go to other people who house them, larger financial institutions that have a bunch of Apple stock, I need to buy at a certain price. How are we meeting? How like People don't stop to think about, it's so simple to click a button and to own a stock. But you go back to the 70s, they shut the stock market down for a week because literally every time a stock was transferred between two people, a paper would have to be, the name would be like the certificate on this is a transfer from this individual to this individual, et cetera. The volume increased, people weren't able to, to keep track of that stuff. So they created what's called the DTC, Depository Trust Company. It's essentially a place where large financial institutions all own a share of this thing and it houses all the stocks. And they hold it, hold everything in street name, right? In the name of the, the brokerage firm, in the name of the bank or whatever it is. So th- this system was developed and financial obscurity was developed on top of it. One of those obscurities is payment for order flow, right? Is uh-huh. this idea that Rather than going to the open market, rather than going to the stock exchanges that have been around for hundreds of years, we're going to buy and sell stocks directly from other people in different liquidity pools. So dark pools, Uh ADTs, all these different financial systems that large financial institutions that have set up their own trading desks and are facilitating the trade there. So you don't have to go out there. Most of the time, this is great. It creates good liquidity. We need these systems in place. People don't understand, like just going to the open market in the state that we're in now can lead to some complexities in some areas, right? You're not going to be able to trade 2 million shares of a company in the open market without creating chaos. So how do you do that in a systematic way outside? So I agree that, you know, this institution, some institutions need to have these systems. What payment for order flow does though, is says, look, we will pay you as a brokerage firm, a rebate for every trade that you execute on our platform. Mm-hmm. in our dark pool or in our ADT or in our small financial trading desk. And we may lose some money on that. The trading firm may lose some money on that. But they want to be able to, A, have access to that information of flow. How are people reacting to markets? So, you know, you think about these large financial institutions, they have a bunch of physics PhDs, math PhDs that are tracking how do people 
they try to model how do people interact with the markets. They try to create models. Hey, if Apple rises 3%, this is going to happen. If Apple drops, five, and how do we start to like inject that liquidity into the market to try to coax out these behaviors, right? To it's to- the momentum of the shares on a daily basis. Exactly. And if you know the derivative of that, if you know how is that changing and the behavioral effects of retail investors and that stuff, that's very valuable to you as a financial institution. So what they'll do is they'll pay for this order execution to brokerages. So they'll say, you don't have to go to the open market. We will make sure that we execute you within what's called the NBBO, the National Best Bid and Offer spread. It's like, who's, you know, who's willing to pay the most, who's willing to sell the cheapest. Okay. As long as you're within that spread, everything is legal. Now, the problem that happens is like twofold. More people start to come out of the public stock exchanges. So that spread spread starts to widen. The NBBO starts to get larger for certain stocks. So there's more room to play within there, right? So you're taking liquidity out of the market. So some things get wonky. So the customer doesn't always get the best order execution. Before, you Mm -hmm. would have had someone that was willing to pay $49 for a stock, someone who's willing to sell it for $0.49.10. So you meet somewhere in the middle of $0.05 difference. Now that spread is like a dollar. So the customer actually, you know, pays 50 cents more and then the brokerage collects some amount on that. They collect 10 cents of that and then they pass 40 cents on to the financial firm that have executed the trades. So retail investors are just getting worse prices. It might be like more convenient in some areas. Maybe liquidity is better in some areas, but it's just reached an extreme case scenario right now where people are pushing payment for order flow to its limits. Right. And we saw let me with the games. Let me stop you for a second yeah. and ask you a question. Yeah. I'm talking to a, a physicist, so I understand your need for the nitty-gritty nuanced yeah. details. But what I'll ask you is if I am an average retail trader, I want to buy shares of Apple. I'll continue that example since we've been giving them so much shine already. And I just want to buy 20 shares of Apple, which is trading somewhere around $150 a share, let's say. So I'm gonna do my trade. I'm going to spend, what is that, $3,000 to do that trade, and I'm going to get those 20 shares. I don't necessarily notice if there's a difference of $0.10 cents yep. in that trade yep. as I place it. I just know that in my Robinhood account, for example, the shares appear immediately. I don't have to worry about settlement yep. the same way you have to worry about with big brokerage house. Yep. I don't have to worry about different trading and execution issues. Is this a market? timed trade? Is this a limit order? Is this a, you know, stop limit order? Is I don't have to worry about any of that. I just say, I want 20 shares of Apple on the app. It goes and everything else that gets executed in the background is your problem. That's yes, the way I think yes, about it. Yes. What's wrong with that? We are incentive. What is the brokerage motivated by? Are we motivated by giving our clients the best price for the shares? Or are we motivated by who's paying us the most to execute those orders? It's simple as that, right? Yeah. So we wanted to remove that burden from us. We didn't want to have to worry about that as a decision in our day-to-day operations. So I care that somebody else is getting to the line in front of me, even though I was here first. And the reason they're getting to the front of the line ahead of me is because they have significantly more dollars than I have to trade. And so the execution of their trades on a dollars and cents basis is always going to be better than mine because I'm the smaller fish in this puzzle. Exactly. You're the smaller fish. You don't have access to the same execution tools, right? So like a retail investor wanting to trade with a large bank, the large bank just has a default product. They're like, we'll give you 70% of the spread or we're taking 70% of the spread. 
large financials say, hey, we'll give you 25 here, 20, whatever. And you can make it a little bit more nuanced so that over the long term of your investments, you're actually noticing one, two, three percent differences across the long term of quality of order execution. And if you have a problem with like a quarter percent management fee with a wealth manager or one percent fee, trust me, payment for order flow is comparable to that in, in certain areas. You just don't see it. People can't see this because we're just doing audio, but I have a big smile on my face that you arrived at that place that I feel like I halfway set you up to get to, frankly, yeah. because that's the argument argument I make to people all the time, where I get people who aren't necessarily familiar with investment management. They're not necessarily familiar with hiring professionals to do this work. And they say, I'm just going to buy the ETF that has four basis points as its expense ratio, yep. because I don't think I should have to pay somebody to to help manage my money for me. I'm not going to pay for a more expensive mutual fund or whatever, because I don't feel like I should have to pay somebody to do that. Now, let me open up my Robinhood app and place a couple of treats. And I'm like, that's bass backwards. Yes. If you just consider the fact that over time, as you're trading hundreds of thousands of dollars through, and I'm beating up on Robinhood because they're like the most egregious player in here. Sure. But there's a lot of platforms that are similar in this way. Yeah. You're paying for it in a way you can't see. Yes. Because by being at the back of the line every time a trade gets placed and not getting best execution, you're giving up your data. So now big trading quant firm knows the momentum is there and a lot of people are buying up Apple shares right now. You're giving them that advantage over you. And then you're also allowing them to place their trade based on your information in front of you. So you're giving up a lot more in that execution than you realize because it's not a dollar figure that's being reported on your statement. So not at all where I thought we were going to (laughs) go, but since you opened up the door for me to preach that sermon for a second, I just thought I'd take the mic and take advantage. But if you don't know anything else about payment for order flow, just know that it was invented and brought to the world by one Bernie Madoff. (laughs) And if you don't know anything else about PFOF, Knowing that it was invented by the dude who executed the world's biggest, most egregious Ponzi scheme in history should be everything you need to know about. Well, maybe that's changed recently. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I take your point. We don't know how much money is recoverable from Alameda and everybody else involved. And God knows what that's going to turn into. But no, that's a really good point. And, and also you have to see in Canada and the UK, it's banned. This practice is banned. Yeah. And so. And then you also mentioned really quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to where I know you wanted to go, the conversation around securities-based lending. Yeah. Why is that a red flag for you as well? In my mind, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of good things. Look, securities lending, shorting, all this, you know, people have different arguments. I'm not here to settle the argument there. Sometimes it provides better liquidity. It keeps companies in check to be able to short things. Sometimes it doesn't. That's not the concern I have. The concern I have is around the shareholder vote. So it turns mm-hmm. out that when you lend out a security, the vote follows the share. Mm-hmm. And why this is so important to understand is that who gets access to the vote literally is one day of the year. A public company will come out and they'll say, who owns the shares on October 27th gets the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And What ends up happening is 80% of all securities, roughly for retail brokerage firms, is lent out around that date because large financial institutions will borrow them for a single day and they will want to participate in the merger and acquisition thing and all this stuff. And 
you know, a couple points on this. Let's say you are a retail investor who's already engaged with your shareholder vote, okay? You can go through the whole cumbersome process that exists today, not using Fennel, and you vote on every single item. And if you don't vote on an item, your vote doesn't count, et cetera, et cetera. You submit it and your brokerage firm never even has the legal obligation to let you know that your vote didn't count, that your vote didn't matter because your security was lent out. And if you look at every single one of these mobile applications, they automatically opt you into two things, a margin account, which by turn automatically opts you into a fully paid securities lending program. Okay. So brokerages work in the same way that a bank does. We don't just put our cash in a bank and forget about it, right? Mm-hmm. We're being charged. We just don't see where we're being charged, okay? So you put your money in a bank. You have the convenience of access anywhere you want. They're taking your cash and investing it in other things, in bonds, in the stock market, in private equity, and et cetera. And they're making money on your money. And they're not giving you anything back, just the convenience of an AT- a free ATM and the horrible customer service that comes with these large banks. So... A brokerage firm works in the same way, right? We house a bunch of securities in-house and we lend them out for interest. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, if our movement really was about the shareholder vote, about engagement, about all the stuff, it didn't make sense to engage with that practice. Maybe over time, as we can become big and we can recall those securities around the date of the record date so that people have the confidence to vote and et cetera, you know, we'll explore those paths. But honestly, yeah, there's also some other problems in that space. But I think there's a bigger point that needs to be made a little bit clearer here as you're talking, which is that just as the U.S. political system, it's important to vote and your vote matters. What you're basically hitting on is that I shouldn't ignore those proxy voting letters that come to me in my inbox as a shareholder that I really do have the ability to affect some change at all of the companies that I own shares of. And also, I shouldn't check the box if I am opening up an account at a place that's a little bit more established and can't do the kind of stuff that you're talking about that's a little more underhanded, like a Fidelity or a Vanguard or Schwab or whoever. They actually have a box on the application that says, I want the company to vote on my behalf or I want to vote myself. And so paying more attention to I want to vote myself is, I think, the more tangible point that you're making for the folks listening, that that shareholder vote really does matter because in concert, enough of you people who own shares of Apple on a Reddit group at one time can force Tim Cook to do just about anything you want him to do or stop doing anything you don't want to see him doing. Yeah, But it's actually understanding how that works that's going to make the difference of whether you get there or not. Yes, 1 million percent. And there's so many great things that that you just said. First of all, there's countless academic papers out right now that talk about how retail investors are actually the ones who sway the the vote one way or another. Okay, so Mm -hmm. for all of you that are saying, oh, why do my couple shares count? Look, you don't need to take my word for it. Go out. I'll, you know, try to post this on LinkedIn or Twitter later. And and you can see that retail investors are actually the ones who decide. The second Mm -hmm. is let's talk about how a shareholder vote comes to be. It's not just uh, uh, someone can easily put a vote. No, no, no. Companies will lobby the SEC, lobby the government to get votes shut out. If mm-hmm. a vote mm-hmm. ever appears in a company's AGM, their annual meeting, it's primarily because they don't, they never wanted to implement this into their business. So when you essentially say whatever the company wants me to do, what you're saying is no to all of these great environmental, social governance votes. 
Second, the only vote that they have to put in there that always passes is say on pay. So it turns mm-hmm. out you can actually approve Tim Cook's uh, salary. You can approve every executive, every board member's salary as a shareholder. Okay, and in recent times, you know, taking Tim Cook as an example, right, there was controversy last year with his say on pay package. It almost didn't pass. What did he decide to do right now? He decided to cut his salary. So real- He voluntarily- Voluntarily. Came out and said, yeah. <laughs> this is a great, you know, air quotes for all of those who can't see me. This yeah. is a great example of how it doesn't matter if the vote passes. By just participating and showing that you care, it will influence the companies to create this change because they, what they don't want is the vote to come back next year, even if it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And those standards get harder and harder, by the way. So you need 10% to bring it back the next year, then 20%, then 30%. And, and eventually... What led to the four of the 12 board members being ousted and Exxon is because there was a shareholder vote the year before calling for call to action on carbon that passed and they did nothing about it. And so Mm -hmm. then they were held accountable to the shareholders and et cetera, and all this stuff happened. So don't let capitalism truly be a system in which, you know, uh, the power is obstructed away from you, right? Just like you go to participate as a, you know, as, as a, as, as a, democratic republican society to vote you should do the same with your with your money yeah here here yeah <laughs> uh, as, as a person who came into this conversation reasonably skeptical of esg investing admittedly uh the greenwashing of of the industry kind of pushed me to say like esg sounds great in theory but dot 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 to just about every conversation <laughs> around it i will say you have Somewhat converted me in certain areas of this conversation. Love to um, hear that. I love So, you know, do with that what you will. <laughs> Big smile on but, my face. Very proud. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say for a second, my last question, you know, has probably nothing to do with Fennel or even ESG. So yeah. you can kind of take that hat off for a second and relax your shoulders for a moment. But let's Ooh. say, you know, for a second, you never found your passion for impact investing. Mm -hmm. So you had to find a different way to occupy your days, but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all. Yeah. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Uh, I'd be a warlord. No, I'm kidding. I I think about this quite a bit. I would likely be um, like a Buddhist or something in some mountain far away, you know, meditating quite a bit, reading, writing. I come from kind of a background of spirituality in my upbringing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I hope one day to return to that. I got sort of a philosopher vibe yes. uh, in, in some of your answers. So that makes that makes it all make sense. <laughs> That's a first, though. I will say we've, we, I've asked that question of just about every guest we've had so far on the show. And so what are we, 67 or so episodes in? I've never had anybody respond Buddhist monk to <laughs> that question. So uh, that is definitely a first. Well, I appreciate this, Daniel. This, this was great, man. Honestly, like I appreciate you being so generous with your time. And also, as I said, you just educated me right here on the spot. So definitely appreciate you making time to do this. Where can people find you if they want to learn more after they hear this show after this episode goes live. Yeah, so I have a LinkedIn. I think that's probably where I'm most active. It's just under Daniel Naeem. Search me. I'm, I'm always open to friends, always open to that stuff. I also have an Instagram handle and a Twitter handle, which I should probably be a little bit more you know, prepared in uh, sharing here. <laughs> the handle is essentially Daniel W. Naeem. So you can find me on Instagram mm-hmm. there. 
but more importantly, I think you can find Fennel. Like, go look at Fennel. Please check out what this awesome team has built. The two plus years that we've, you know, put into this and where we're hoping to go. Again, you can find us on just like fennel.com. You can find us on LinkedIn under Fennel, Instagram, all that Fennel app on Instagram, all that stuff. So please be sure to check us out there. Awesome. This has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social at Malcolm on Money. And feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money LLC. Thank you for listening. information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...